Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. Happy uh, Sunday before Christmas. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are uh, with us. Uh, If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Psalm 10 as we just uh, read. Uh, And uh, and this might not seem like a a Christmas text, but uh, that's only because you haven't actually heard the sermon yet. And so in honor of Christmas, I spent uh, some time this week uh, thinking about various uh, traditions that we associate with Christmas time, with, uh, with Yuletide, with this uh, particular season. And uh, in particular, I was researching various holiday rituals and customs of other uh, traditions, other cultures, other countries, and so forth. And not to sound all ethnocentric, but I thought a lot of them were not only foreign, but uh, they bordered on silly. For instance... Did you know that in Venezuela, it's customary to uh, roller skate to church on Christmas? I would love that if you guys would do that for the Christmas Eve service. In fact, if anyone will roller skate from their house all the way to the church, I'll buy them coffee if they will do that. Uh, In Norway, uh, in Norway, it's a tradition that some parents hide their brooms on that particular day, on Christmas Day, uh, because of a traditional belief that witches attack on Christmas Day. So apparently they're trying to cut off their means of transport or something like that. So I asked Claudia Lawson, Jared's wife, uh, because she's from Norway, I asked her about this tradition. She said, yeah, it's tradition, but basically only uh, old people do it. And uh, so I don't know how old that means, maybe Carl or something like that. But in Iceland, there is a tradition of what's called a Yule cat, which is this legendary giant feline that devours everyone who doesn't have a new outfit for the holiday, all right? So if you don't get new clothes, not only are you embarrassed because you have to wear last year's uh, sweater, now you have to worry about some mutant cat eating you. And you wonder why we make fun of cats here at Parkway, because they eat little Icelandic kids on Christmas. In Japan, the land of my uh, father's people, my, my uh, dad was, uh, was adopted from Japan. Do you know what the traditional Christmas dinner is? Anybody know? Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? That's a true story. So executives for KFC in the, uh, in the 70s recognized that because uh, Japan didn't have much cultural Christian influence, they didn't have any sort of Christmas traditions. So they just invented one. And they said, yes, this is what Americans do on Christmas. And so the Japanese began to pick that up. And so today, people will wait in line for hours and they will reserve buckets of chicken for weeks in advance. But my favorite tradition that I found in in uh, in researching this was from Spain's Catalan region where each year they get a log and then they hollow that log out and then they paint uh, a little face on it and put little legs on it and kind of make it look like a man and then each day they stuff little treats fruits and nuts and candy and so forth uh, into the log. And then on Christmas Eve, all of the kids of the family gather around that log and then they take sticks and they begin to beat it while they sing a song about how the quote poop log needs to quote poop out its treats. That was for all of you four and five-year-olds who are in here. My point isn't that foreigners are crazy. It's that every culture has certain traditions that they associate with various holidays. However, one tradition that kind of transcends all of these uh, cultures when it comes to Christmas is the idea of Christ give, uh, of, uh, of gift giving. We tend to associate Christmas with gift giving. And those, those gifts might be small, 
like some candy or fruit that's stuffed into a log, or it might be large. Like whenever you'll watch one of those commercials and a husband buys a Lexus for his wife, as if that's not going to cause a fight or something. And so when, uh, when Christians talk about Christmas, typically we talk about Christ give, uh, uh, I don't know why I keep saying that, Christ giving, gift giving. We talk about how Christmas is not about the gifts that are under the tree. Uh, it's about the gift that hung on the tree 2,000 years ago, and that's absolutely true. Or we talk about, uh, when we talk about Christmas, we talk about how it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, and that's true as well. But our passage today kind of puts a different spin on the idea of associating uh, Christmas with gifts, because although it is about a gift, it isn't about the gifts that we give. And it isn't even primarily about the gifts that we have been given. Instead, as we'll see, it's about the gift that the Father has given His Son, That's the meaning of this particular Christmas text. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, unwrap it uh, together. I want to just ask you first just to pray for yourself. As you come in, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're fearful, maybe you're sad or frustrated or whatever it might be, that the Lord would give you grace to hear his word. And then would you pray that for those around you as well, whether they're friends or strangers or family or whatever it might be. The Lord would give us a collective as a, as a body, a corporate desire to hear and to heed his word. And then for me, that I would be uh, faithful to God's word. So Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We confess that we need it. Apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. And so uh, we pray for our time together that you would encourage us by your word, that you would edify us by your word. I pray that nothing that I would say would be untrue and thus uh, unhelpful, that nothing would be unclear or unfaithful. And, uh, and so we ask these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. You give good gifts to, uh, to your son by nature, and then also to your adopted sons and daughters. And so we pray with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at the, uh, the title, which is a Psalm of David. After about five months now in the Psalms, we've already kind of beaten this horse like that little log in Catalan. But as a reminder, this title that you see here in your Bible is considered part of the canon of Scripture. And so we consider it to be inspired and authoritative and so forth. And this one just says a Psalm of David which could mean a psalm about David. That's what we saw last week in Psalm 72 where the phrase of Solomon uh, is used. And there, that meant about Solomon, at least on the surface, although there was a deeper meaning as we talked about last week. But here, of David doesn't mean about David, but instead it means by David. And we know that not only from the context, but also from Jesus himself, who is explicitly going to say that uh, David authored this psalm. Look at Matthew 22. Verses 43 through 45. He, that's Jesus, said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, till I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? By the way, this is just one of the plethora of references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. In fact, this is the most quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. 
which means it's probably pretty important that we understand what's going on here in this particular text. So let's begin by getting a lay of the land, and then we will uh, look more closely at the text. If you happen to have an actual Bible in your possession, or you have it on your phone, or something like that, and I would encourage you not simply to rely on the screen behind me, but I want you to notice something. If you look at that, so you can kind of see uh, the overall structure, and this psalm is going to be organized around two different oracles, two different divine words, two different prophetic words. And those are in verses one and verse four. Then you have in the subsequent verses between those are images of the fulfillment of those prophetic oracles. So for instance, verse one, there's this divine promise that we're gonna, going to see. And then in verses two through three, you see imagery of the fulfillment of that promise. Then in verse four, you're going to see another divine word, another oracle. And then in verses five through seven, you're going to see more imagery of fulfillment. So you might think of this psalm as revolving around these two main oracles, these two main prophetic hopes that are expressed in verses one and four with accompanying imagery around that in the subsequent verses. So let's look at the first oracle in verse one. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. By now you should know what it means when you see the word Lord in all capital letters. That's a reference to the divine name Yahweh. So Yahweh is speaking here. And to whom is he speaking? What says to my Lord? The Lord says to my Lord. And who's the author of this? It's David. So it's David's Lord that this is being spoken to, which is fascinating. This is fascinating because David is king. Why is that fascinating? Because kings don't generally refer to others as Lord, this is the, the, the nuance that Jesus is going to pick up on. He's going to highlight when he questions the Pharisees, as we just read in Matthew. Basically, he asked if the Messiah, if the Christ, if this anointed one is the son of David, as the, uh, the Pharisaical hope, as the prophetic hope well, would have been, then why would David call him Lord? Do you, for instance, call your own kids or your grandkids Lord? Of course not. Does Queen Elizabeth bow to Prince Charles? Of course not. So Psalm 110 is referencing this messianic hope, this hope of an anointed one, this hope of a Christ, and yet embedded in that hope is the somewhat subtle suggestion that the Messiah is more than just a son of David. Now, how much more isn't really uh, shown in this particular text. Actually, how much more? We won't find out until we actually get into the New Testament, but there's at least a glimmer, a hint, a whisper in this passage that he is something more. Yes, he's the son of David, but he's more than the son of David. As an illustration of this, kind of think about the image of a kid walking into a room wearing his, uh, his uh, mom or dad's clothes. And kind of picture that and the the clothes don't quite fit, they're too big for him. That's kind of the way that the messianic hope functioned in the life of Israel and in the genealogy of her various kings. There were all of these expectations, all of these prophetic hopes for the son of David, but it never fully fit any of the sons of David. It didn't quite fit Solomon It didn't quite fit Rehoboam or Hezekiah or Josiah. As Saul's armor was too big for David when he fought Goliath, so these prophetic hopes were too large for David's offspring until the Messiah, the Christ. Only he is worthy to actually be called David's Lord. And what does Yahweh say to this messianic figure, this one that uh, David referred to as 
Lord. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right, we've talked about this before, that the imagery of a right hand in many ancient cultures symbolized power, strength, and honor, which is terribly offensive to those of us like myself who are lefties. The image of a footstool, though, is going to have this uh, imagery of humiliation of God's enemies. So this is the hope. And then you see the imagery of fulfillment of that hope in verses two through three. So let's look at those. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So verse one was about this prophetic anticipation of the establishment of the king's rule and reign and thus the subjection of the enemies of his kingdom. And that's the imagery of this particular section. You see the fulfillment of that in this imagery of verses two through three. First, you have this idea of the scepter which is this ornamental staff that's carried by kings and queens as a sign of their sovereignty. And it's pictured, notice, as extending forth from Zion in fulfillment of this Old Testament hope embedded in passages like Genesis 49.10, which says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice the similarities there between Genesis 49 and Psalm 110. You have this imagery of the scepter. You have the enemies that are under his feet. You have the obedience of the people. So the, the, the scepter extends forth from Zion as a sign of his sovereignty but the text doesn't say, at least here it doesn't say, how far does it reach? Yes, the, the scepter is extending forth from Zion, but how far does the scepter actually reach? And in this particular section, the extent of the kingdom is not mentioned, but we'll see in verse six that it extends over, quote, the wide earth, which is an idea that we also see whispered throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 2.8, which we did uh, a couple of months ago. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then in the New Testament, we see a further clarification as people of every tongue and tribe and nation worship King Jesus, who rules with this iron rod or this iron scepter. So this entire section that you see here in verses two through three kind of reminds me of that scene from the Lion King where you have Mufasa and he's sitting there and he's talking to Simba and they're looking out over the savanna. And what does Mufasa says? He says, everything the light touches, all that the light touches is yours. That's what's going on here in this prophetic oracle, all right? Except in the kingdom of God, there are no outlands. There's no area outside of the king's rule and reign. There's no, in the, in the language of the Lion King, there's no elephant graveyard. The scepter is going to go forth from Pride Rock and it's gonna cover the entire earth. So God is sovereign over a submissive people. That's the image here. Not only God, but God's representative, the Messiah, who from the New Testament we'll learn is also God himself. But like it says here, there, there is a submissive people. They will offer themselves freely in holy garments. But notice, not everyone does so. Notice there's still a reference to enemies here. And then the fate of those enemies will be expounded upon in verses five through seven. But before we move on, let's briefly talk about this phrase, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I spent hours researching, studying, thinking about this little phrase. And at the end of my time, I agreed with Spurgeon who said this about this particular text. No verse in the scripture has puzzled me more than to this, to find out its meaning and its connection. So I don't know what to do with it. Even the, most, the, the best, most modern commentaries aren't very helpful, but the best I can make of it, and I'm moving a bit into uncomfortable speculation, so take it with a grain of salt, but the best I can make of it is that as the dew suddenly appears, suddenly and mysteriously appears in the morning, so will those who freely give themselves to the Lord. Or to use language of the New Testament, John 3, 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the difference between these two groups of people that you see in verses two through three, your people who offer themselves freely and God's enemies, the difference between these two people is rooted in something more than just the will of his people. It's something more mysterious, something more glorious. As the New Testament would say, it's the mystery of divine election that the Father has sovereignly chosen a people for himself and given them to his Son. So we've seen thus far all of these gifts that the Father has given to his Son. The Father gives his Son an earthly throne. He gives his Son a scepter. He gives his Son sovereignty. He gives his, people a, uh, he gives his Son a people. But that's not all. There's another gift to unwrap. We see it. In verse four, look at that, the next oracle. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now to really understand the significance of this passage, you need to understand something of Old Testament Jewish, uh, Old Testament Jewish history. In particular, you need to know that in ancient Israel, there were three main offices in the nation. You had prophets, you had priests, and you had kings. And in general, those were occupied by different people. Those are distinct offices that are occupied by a different, distinct people. In fact, the Old Testament is very explicit that kings are not to function as priests. Priests are from the tribe of Levi, not the maker of fine jeans, all right? Priests are from the tribe of Levi. Kings are from what line? The line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. Although the very first king, Saul, was actually from the tribe of Benjamin. But speaking of Saul, the fact that a king is not supposed to function like a priest was made abundantly clear in his life. One of the lessons that you need to learn about Saul is related to this idea. How so? Because he was rejected by God. Though he's the first king of Israel, he was rejected by God. And the reason he was rejected by God was for doing priestly stuff. Because the king is not supposed to do the work of a priest. So in 1 Samuel 13, Saul is going to be tired of waiting for Samuel to come. He's tired of waiting for Samuel to come and to offer this uh, offering, this sacrifice that he's supposed to do. And so Saul takes it upon himself to do this priestly role rather than waiting on Samuel. And so God's response is to take the crown away from Saul and to give it to David. So when David himself prophesies that this messianic king will also be a priest, that's significant. His predecessor lost his crown as a result of that. In fact, he lost his life as a result of that. 
So the fact that, uh, that David is prophesying that this messianic king will also be a priest is highly significant. It's unheard of. Well, actually, it's not entirely unheard of. Instead, there's this shadowy figure in the Old Testament who anticipated this type of a priest king, this union of the priesthood and the kingdom in one particular person. Who was that shadowy figure? Well, his name is Melchizedek. And that's why David mentions him here. Now, considering that the Messiah is going to be compared to Melchizedek, you would think that we would find a lot about him as we read the Old Testament, but we don't. In fact, uh, besides this passage that we have in Psalm 110, the only other place we encounter Melchizedek in the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. So then you might think, well, an entire section is devoted to him. Or maybe at least a, a couple of chapters or maybe one chapter. Nope, just four verses. That's all we have. So let's read them together. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. This is literally all we have besides Psalm 110 about Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. After his, that's Abraham, though here at this point in the narrative, he's still called Abram. After his return from the defeat of Shedeleor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is all we have about Melchizedek. So we know that Melchizedek is a king. He's a king of what city? Of Salem. And what's Melchizedek's name mean? Anybody know that from the book of, uh, of Hebrews or just from knowing Hebrew? Melchizedek means king of peace. And what does he bring as an offering or what does he bring out to Abraham? He brings bread and wine. Now think about this. Can you think of any other king of peace and king of righteousness who reigns in the city of Salem Jerusalem, who offers bread and wine, who blesses the offspring of Abraham, who receives gifts of tribute from them, that's going to sound really familiar. But let's just focus on the facts for now that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. That's the point that David is making here in Psalm 110. And I think that the reason he's doing so is because David is thinking typologically. In other words, he knows the Messiah is going to be a priest king, but he also knows that the current separation of the offices to the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah make that impossible. So he sees in Melchizedek a type a shadow, an image, a foreshadowing of this messianic hope, this messianic expectation. Again, this image of a priest king, it's kind of like a suit of armor. It's too big for Solomon. It's too big for Hezekiah. It's too big for Josiah. It only fits one son of David, that is the Christ, who was later revealed as Jesus of Nazareth. And this new and better priesthood that's connected to the kingdom is a really, really good thing. In fact, the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on this imagery and and, and he's going to devote three entire chapters to discussing how the priesthood of Christ is superior to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. In other words, this is not a lateral change from one pretty good priesthood to another slightly better priesthood or something like that. 
This isn't like trading in your perfectly working iPhone 11 for a brand new, slightly better iPhone 12. This is like moving up from a rotary phone that still connects to a switchboard. You're wondering why is no one on the other end of the line? That's what's happening here. It's not a lateral move. The movement from the Levitical priesthood to Christ's priesthood is infinitely better. And that's what the author of Hebrews is gonna pick up on. In particular, the author of Hebrews points to eight ways, eight different ways in which Christ's priesthood is superior, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. First, he's gonna say that Christ's priesthood is greater in regards to its quantity. What does he mean by that? Well, he means in the Levitical priesthood, there was the necessity of many priests. It wasn't simply one priest, but there were myriad priests that had to offer sacrifices versus Christ's priesthood where there's only one. Second, it's greater in its duration. The, The Levitical priesthood was always temporary, whereas Christ is permanent, it's eternal. Third, in regards to its frequency. In the Old Testament, there was this necessity of daily sacrifices versus in Christ. It's completed. He's offered one sacrifice once for all. This is why the author of Hebrews would pick up on the imagery of the fact that Christ has sat down. You see that uh, throughout the Old Testament in particular, the the, the image that Christ is going to sit down at the right hand of uh, on high. And so the author of Hebrews says that's significant. Why? Because when you sit down, that symbolizes that your work is done. The Levitical priesthoods were forbidden from sitting down. They had to constantly stand as a sign that they are constantly having to offer sacrifices. Fourth, it's greater in its quality. In one, there's a, there are these sinful sinners that offer sacrifices. In the other, the sacrifice is offered by one who is unblemished, by one who is holy and innocent. Fifth, in regards to the focus of the sacrifice, the Levitical priests offer sacrifices for themselves whereas Christ has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself, and so he only offers the sacrifices for others. Six, in regards to the object of the sacrifices, the priest offered animals, Christ offers himself. Seventh, the sphere, the priest offers sacrifices in a man-made tent or tabernacle or temple, whereas Christ entered into heaven itself. And eighth, the means of the sacrifice, the blood of goats and calves versus Christ's own Blood. Now, what is the purpose of drawing all of these contrasts? What is the author of Hebrews doing? What he's doing there is he's showing the supremacy of Christ. Yes, Christ is a priest, but it's not a lateral movement from the Levitical priesthood to Christ's priesthood. He is infinitely greater. He's so much better than the Old Testament imagery of the priesthood. Likewise, yes, Christ is a king, but he's so much better then the genealogy of kings were counted throughout the Old Testament. So last week, as we looked at Psalm 72, and Zach talked about how the Bible says that something greater than Solomon is here. We read that passage, that Jesus is a better king than Solomon. But what's interesting is that the Bible would also say that he's a better prophet and a better priest. Look at Matthew 12. You see all of these in the same chapter. Matthew 12, 6. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you something greater then the temple is here. Matthew 12, 41, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 12, 42, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than the temple and thus greater than the priesthood that functioned in that temple. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Indeed, he's greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Indeed, he's greater than all other kings. He's the ultimate and final prophet 
priest and king. And this is a promise. Notice this language that's given here. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. And this is really interesting. Remember what we said about King Saul previously, that he offered this unlawful sacrifice. And what was the result of that? Well, two chapters later, we read this. 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But wait a second, how can God regret? He's omniscient. He's eternal, which doesn't just mean that he lives forever, but that he exists outside of time. So how can God have, quote, regret? How can he change his mind? Well, keep reading. We were reading 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11, Skip all the way down to verse 29 and it says, also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So what does that mean? Does God have regret or not? It seems like the author is contradicting himself. Does he change his mind or not? In order to answer that question, we need to do a bit of theology. In particular, we need to understand that the Bible is speaking anthropomorphically. All right? The Bible is speaking anthropomorphically, which means that when the Bible talks about God, it talks about him analogically. It's, it talks about him using representation, using human uh, imagery, although it's not actually literally true of God. So the Bible talks about God's right hand, but that doesn't mean he has a physical right hand. He doesn't have fingers and skin and fingernails and so forth. He doesn't ever stub his toe or something whenever the Bible talks about God's foot. The Bible talks about God remembering. That doesn't mean that he ever forgets. The Bible uses this language to describe God, which isn't literal, but figurative. It's analogical, it's representative. So when the Bible talks about God changing his mind, that's figurative. His mind isn't actually changed. In fact, there is no change in God. We spent a lot of time talking about that already. This is part of what it means to be God, to be beyond change. In fact, we read this uh, uh, quote a couple of months ago. I think it's helpful to remind you of it, but it's by a guy named Herman Bovink. And he says, the difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. You ever thought about that? If someone were to ask you, what's the difference between God and you? Have you thought one of the main differences is that God is being and you are becoming? All that is creaturely is in process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. This is why in scripture, God is so often called the rock. We humans can rely on him. He does not change in his being, knowing, or willing. He eternally remains who he is. Every change is foreign to God. In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal, nor in location, for he is omnipresent, nor in essence, for he is pure being. Or as Bavink will say elsewhere, there is change around, about, and outside of him. And there is change in people's relation to him, but there is no change in God himself. Now, why is that important for us to recognize? Because what does change imply for God? Well, if God changes, it implies one of two things. Either that he changed for the better, in which case he wasn't previously perfect, or it implies that he's changing now for the worse, in which case he's no longer perfect. 
So you see, what you believe about this doctrine, it's called the immutability of God, what you believe about this has major ramifications for how we understand God and also how we relate to him. Lest you think this is all just stuff for textbooks. This is stuff that theologians, professional theologians need to know and not for everyday life. Think about this. Think for a second about the implications of the possibility of God changing. If you really understood what that means, I think it would terrify you. It should terrify you. How so? Because God, though, because though God loves you today, what confidence could you ever have that he will love you tomorrow? If God changes, then who's to say that his affection for you won't change? His commitment to you won't change. His grace to you won't change. His mercy to you won't change. For instance, I used to love Taco Bell. Then it gave me food poisoning. I haven't had it since. That's 15 years ago when I was in seminary. Think of all the things that you used to love. You used to love another man or woman beside your spouse. You used to love certain foods that you no longer love. You used to love fashion choices like Z Cavaricci. Maybe you loved having a fanny pack. Maybe you loved wearing socks with sandals. Maybe you loved bands like Creed or Spice Girls. At some point, you love certain things that now you're kind of ashamed of. So if God changes, who's to say that he's not going to be ashamed of you? That he's not going to grow tired of you or me? But God doesn't change. And God doesn't change his mind. When the Bible speaks of God changing his mind, that's anthropomorphic. That's figurative language. He doesn't actually change, but the circumstances change around him and thus his actions seem to change from our perspective, from our limited perspective. For example, when he says that he will overthrow Nineveh in the story of Jonah, we preached through Jonah uh, a couple of years ago or something. Uh, but in that story, he said he's gonna overthrow Nineveh and then he relents. And doesn't throw, overthrow Nineveh. Why not? Not because he changes his mind, not because he's capricious, but because Nineveh repented. And there's always this uh, divine expectation that God would relent as people repent. But what's happening in Psalm 110 is that God is promising that even those outward actions will not change in regards to the Messiah. Unlike Saul, God will never change his mind in any sense never remove his love in any sense from this king, from the Christ, from the son of David. He has sworn and will not change his mind. And that's really good news for us since we're united to the son, since we're united to this king. So he won't change his mind about us either, but that's not the focus of this particular text. But let's keep going and see the fruit of that commitment in verses five and seven, five through seven. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So earlier we saw that the Messiah was at Yahweh's right hand. And now you see that, the, that Yahweh is at the Messiah's right hand. In other words, Yahweh is the power by which the Messiah will reign. And that reign includes the judgment of all his enemies. Notice the language there, shattering kings and chiefs, executing judgment, filling them with corpses. We've mentioned this before, but one of the things that we need to do if we actually want to think according to a biblical worldview, if you actually wanna have a Christian worldview and not just be someone who goes to church, 
One of the things that we have to do if we actually want to think according to biblical categories is to rid ourselves of all of these cultural presuppositions. In particular, in this passage, we need to discard this evangelical assumption of this sort of pietistic pacifism that envisions all violence as sinful, all killing as murder. This is why we spent entire lessons this semester talking about things like capital punishment and just warfare and self-defense in light of a Christian worldview. The reason that we did so is because the theology that is assumed in most of evangelicalism from Hillsong to Bethel to most megachurches and progressive Christianity is really a caricature. Most people's conception of God or of Jesus is much more like Santa Claus than it is the sovereign God of the Bible. And where your theology paints a caricature of God, that's a place you need to repent because you're thinking of him incorrectly, incorrectly. The Bible is explicitly unashamed, unembarrassed by the idea that God takes vengeance on his enemies, that he judges sins and he judges sinners, that he destroys and that he kills. If you are embarrassed by that, you're embarrassed by something that God is not ashamed of and you should repent. That's not something the Bible is ashamed of and yet an entire generation of Christians today cringe at that representation. Or they imagine that it only describes the God of the Old Testament as if the Bible doesn't describe Jesus as returning on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to, quote, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So Merry Christmas, right? Nothing nothing like a little wrath to really warm the spirit, prepare you for the holidays. Before we begin to, to tie a bow on this sermon, I want to look at this last phrase here, which says, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. At the end of verse three, we talked about how that was so difficult, the, the, the reference to the morning and the dew, probably the most difficult part of the text. Well, this uh, part of, uh, of verse seven here is the most difficult part of this section to interpret. The overall idea isn't all that difficult. The idea that's expressed is just the idea that his victory will be complete. So the general idea isn't all that confusing, but this particular metaphor or the the particular language is, what does drinking from a brook symbolize? And there are three main interpretations. I'll be honest, I have no idea which is correct. I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to give you the three options and let you wrestle with it because at the end of the day, uh, although it does matter, It doesn't matter in terms of the application of the text all that much. So option one, option one is to just see this as a general reference to refreshment, right? This is being written in the context of Israel. Israel is what kind of of, uh, environment? It's arid, it's a desert, right? And so the imagery of, uh, of drinking water in a desert culture would have implied rest and refreshment. That's option one. It's just kind of a, a general idea of refreshment. Option two is going to get a bit more specific and that it sees here a connection to uh, early warfare practices. So in, in, in ancient culture, one of the main strategies for defeating an enemy was to surround the city, what's called a siege, and then you cut off food and water until your in- enemy eventually starves or surrenders. And so some commentaries see this as basically saying that the Messiah's kingdom will never be surrendered will never be surrounded. There will never be a siege that overcomes it. There will, there will never be any sort of victory over it. In other words, he will always drink from the brooks. 
His kingdom is permanent. It's eternally secure. So that's the second option. The third option is that this has more of a historical referent in the, uh, the imagery of the Old Testament. That is that there was this historical practice of kings in Israel being enthroned as part of a ceremony. And that ceremony, at least part of the ceremony, would take place at a particular spring in, uh, in Jerusalem. Right? That spring was called Gihon. So uh, Solomon, for example, was ordained as king at this particular spring. So some commentators think this is a reference to that tradition, that the Messiah will drink from the stream as a sign of ordination and enthronement. Again, whatever the particular meaning of this metaphor, of this imagery, the overall idea is the same. So let me give you a metaphor in, uh, in our kind of cultural vernacular. He will have Gatorade poured over his head. That's kind of the imagery there. What does that connote to you? Notice I didn't say the word coach. I didn't mention a sporting event. But everyone had that sort of uh, idea because it's an idiom. It's a, a common expression. That's what you thought of. Now, which coach has the Gatorade poured over his head? Both coaches? The winner and the loser? No, just the winning coach. And just any game? Like a preseason game, do you pour the Gatorade over the head of your coach? No, it's typically a significant game. The playoffs, the Super Bowl, the national championship. And that's what I think this image is doing. It's showing that this ultimate victory is won and that the Messiah reigns. All right. Now I realize this is a strange Christmas text. There's nothing about little baby Jesus, nothing about the gifts that we receive. And yet this text cuts to the heart of the meaning of Christmas because Christmas isn't ultimately about us at all. Christmas is ultimately about a king and his kingdom. As Jesus says in John 18, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I think the first application of Psalm 110 is just that we would repent this morning of thinking that Christmas is about us. Christmas is not about us. Yes, Jesus came, he was incarnate, he was born, he came to save us from our sins, but that's not the ultimate reason. That's the penultimate reason. That's the second to the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason that Jesus came is so that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The ultimate reason is the consummation of a kingdom and the splendor of a king. The ultimate reason he came is not for you or for me, but for himself and for his father and for the spirit. And to accomplish this goal, the father has given the, the son these two main gifts revolving around these two oracles that we see here in Psalm 110. And as those are unwrapped, though they're not ultimately about us, they have this profound implications for us because we're united to the one that they are about. Does that make sense? That the passage is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. But since we're united to Jesus through faith, we thus share in the blessings that are his. So first, as it relates to Christ being given a kingdom, it's the first gift that we saw here in verse one, because all of Christ's enemies will be judged and subjected to his rule, this should have the effect on us to stoke the fires of our faith and to snuff out the opportunities for fear. As Romans 8 says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from Christ's love. And as the Father has promised to never remove his love from his Son, then so we share in that promise because we share in the Son. Second, 
as it relates to Christ being given a priesthood, the gift that we see in verse four. Because Christ is not only king but also priest, he has finally and ultimately offered a completely sufficient sacrifice. Jesus would say it like this, to telestai, it is finished. So you don't have to work to earn God's love. His love for you isn't based on your sacrifices, your offerings, your character, your good works, your behavior, your gifts that you offer him. In fact, it isn't based on you at all. It's based on him. God loves you not because you're lovable, but because he is love. Not only that, but Christ's priesthood implies that even now he lives to make intercession for his people. He's seated at the right hand on high, interceding on our behalf, and that reality should prompt and empower our own prayer and intercession for one who, to one who ultimately cares for us and has loved us from before the beginning of the world. So Christ is our priest, and he is our king. And in this we find our hope, which is ultimately what Christmas is about. So with hope and expectation and with confidence, let's pray as we prepare to take communion. Father, I confess that we are unworthy. We're unworthy of your love. We're unworthy of your grace. And yet we boast this morning because of your son. So we thank you for giving him an eternal kingdom and a perpetual priesthood. And as an implication of that, we thank you that you have thus given to us a sovereign king and a merciful high priest. I confess I often attempt to be my own king. And then when I fall short in that regard, I try to function as my own priest to appease you with my efforts, my works, my deeds. And so would you lead me, would you lead us as a church to repentance and rest in Christ for trying to be our own kings, for trying to function as our own priests and that we as a people might understand the implications of the reality of Christ's kingdom and priesthood and that it would affect the way that we live and think and worship and pray. We ask these things because you are good and you do good and so we ask in the name of Christ, amen.